the Seattle Opera Podcast. Hello, opera lovers. This is Jonathan Dean, Seattle Opera Dramaturg and occasional underdressed or fleece-wearing Seattle Opera attendee. There's a lot to talk about with this exciting Seattle Opera premiere of The Revolution of Steve Jobs by Mason Bates and Mark Campbell. I know the audiences are going to have strong reactions to the music, to the story, to the characters and the performers, and the amazing technology, both aural and visual, that they will experience in the theater. But in today's podcast, we'll explore a very important element of the show, the costumes. With me here is Susan Davis who has managed Seattle Opera's amazing costume shop for 17 years, but who's worked with Seattle Opera, I think, even longer than that. Susan, do you remember your first ever engagement working with Seattle Opera? Yes, I moved to Seattle in 1989 to work as a draper in the costume shop, so I made costumes for about seven years, mostly for principal singers and also the chorus. And then you had a little, there was a brief interregnum where you weren't working for Seattle Opera. Yeah, I left for about six years to run my own business, which was an independent costume studio doing the same work, but for clients such as Seattle Opera and other opera companies, um, and also had a business called Period Courses. Still exists today, but I'm no longer the owner. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you just, uh, I imagine, a, a whole body of knowledge that you must have accumulated working on, in particular, operas with historical settings. Exactly. So to like know how to do that, to get it Right, to get and it what accurate. shape do you need in a petticoat to make the skirt hang properly? Mm -hmm. so then you came back, and you uh, started with us actually before McCaw Hall, uh, when, right, we, when the costume shop first before. moved over to the uh, old Seattle Opera facility, the one that we've just recently left. And Thank goodness. Happy we are. I imagine you guys are pretty happy with all that natural light. We love our new shop. It's beautiful. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you can walk down Spate Jenkins Way and peek in the window and see what we're doing. Mm, very, very cool. Let's talk actually about this question of the historical. Uh, we do a, a lot of historical costumes, not in the case of the revolution of Steve Jobs. I take issue with that, though. People often, if they recognize the garments, they know it's a shirt and pants, then they'll say it's, it's a modern. modern show. But really, if it's anything before today, it's not modern. It's still historic <laughs> dress. It's just that you understand more quickly what the clothes are because they look like things you have in your closet. The or time. that you might still be wearing because you might have that favorite <laughs> sweater from 15 years ago. Uh -huh. So costumes are, and, and particularly when we do those fantastic historical costumes, that's a major draw for people to come to opera in the first place. I hope so. No? <laughs> when you're preparing costumes for a show like Trovatore, which just closed, right. do you take into account what they're going to want to see? Well, really, all the, the vision for what you see on stage comes from the director and their design team. So that's the set designer, the costume designer, the lighting designer. And as and a costume shop, your job is less to design and more to uh, make the design happen. Right. We're bringing these ideas to reality. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The artistic taste, theoretically, is entirely the designer's. The cutters, in working with the designers on developing the pattern, they take what they understand about the human figure and the shape to make some choices in the cut of a garment or the drape of the fabric to be the most flattering if that's the intention of the costume. Oh, interesting. And that might be not something even that the designer Right. Has, the designer might not of. have that much technical expertise. They might defer to the cutter. You know, do you think that should be uh, on the straight grain or the bias grain? 
mm-hmm. or should we put this kind of a backing fabric or this kind? And because in cutter many cases, will, I mentioned the cutter has a lot of experience with the practicalities of it. Right. Knows this is how to make something like that really pop or or look really right to hang the way that it does in the sketch, say, mm. for example. Or possibly um, they've worked with that singer before and they know, you know, this shape of collar actually won't be successful on them. What if we modify it this way? Mm -hmm. So there are some very specific details that they can weigh in about. We have to get history reasonably accurate. And we want to flatter the singers and make them all look good. But we also are, in in many cases, working with ideas that actually existed. Right. In real culture, in real history, and this is what they wore. I don't know if it's the designer who actually uh, knows all of the details as much as you guys with the expertise and the knowledge of having you know, just doing this all the time. Yeah, it really comes from both sides. So in the case of Steve Jobs, the designer did a lot of research. So Paul Carey is the costume designer for Revolution of Steve Jobs. Many of the scenes portrayed there's a photographic record there's some really great research mm-hmm. whereas when you are going back to the 18th century there aren't any photos to show us you know what um, people in the marketplace wore right mm-hmm. we have to look at paintings and then use our imaginations to a certain extent what is that extent does it there come a line where somebody you look at a, a costume designer sketch and say no no one ever wore that that's you know reject Yeah, well, we are making art, so Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that you see on stage that if you could time travel back, you probably would never see, Mm -hmm. but um, we're making choices, like in Il Trovatore, making choices of color where Manrico's men were all in earth tone fabrics with the little touches of red, and De Luna's men were in the black and gray and blue, so we're just making... It very clear to the audience when you're looking at so many people on stage, you know, who's on which team. Yeah, I mean, kind of like when you watch a football game, yeah. right? You know who's on which team. <laughs> it's sort of like that. <laughs> now, uh, in the case of the revolution of Steve Jobs, you do, have, as you mentioned, there's photos of much of his life and video footage and so forth. He also had a, a distinct fashion sense himself. I mean, he had this sort of iconic uniform. That, I mean, not only for people who work in Apple stores, but that he himself... Yeah, so we're all used to seeing an image of him wearing a sort of turtleneck sweater and some Levi's. There are other people of his uh, brain caliber that also wear sort of a uniform dress. And the idea is, you know, you kind of have limited brain space to to make a number of decisions in your day. And so where can you save your energy so you're using all your resources for the most important things in your day? And for him, clothing was least important, so he didn't have to think about it. He knew exactly what he was going to wear every day. And it was not a question of, hmm, does this shirt and tie match? And, <laughs> you know, all of that. It's a full turtleneck? Uh, it's a mock, me about a mock turtleneck. What's the difference yeah. between a full and a mock? Sure. A full turtleneck is a six-inch tall tube at your neck that's folded in half mm-hmm. often or scrunched down. And the mock turtleneck is more like a tall two or three inch sort of band collar that just lays closely against your neckline. And so we'll see Steve, or actually we'll see John Moore as Steve yes. in the mock turtleneck. In the mock turtleneck. In this case. Yes. Does that help him get in character? I mean, he's been working on the, the character of Steve Jobs now for a long time, oh. learning the music, uh, doing the research, and trying to get into the headspace. Uh, we heard from him on a podcast last week, and it's, I mean, it's pretty, the effort that he's put into that is uh, commendable. Right. But, but the costume is also part of Absolutely. that process. Yeah, really in any show. I mean, we've had singers come in, and when they put their costume on in their in their fitting, they look in the mirror and say, oh, 
now I really feel like, I remember when we were producing Iphigenie, uh, Nuccia Focile came into her fitting and she put her costume on and we were getting everything, getting the hems right and so on. And she just looked into the mirror and really something came over her and she said, now I am Iphigenie. Like it just kind of sealed who she was And that was, was one of those great costumes by Marty Pakladina. So I remember oh, yes. very well where it was, you know, she'd been in it for a long time. Right. Do performers get a say? I mean, as the costume designer gets to come up with the idea, you guys make the idea reality, but then the performer shows up on the first day of rehearsal, goes in for their fitting. They often have strong opinions about things. Right, and the interesting thing about doing something that has contemporary clothing, clothing that is like things people have worn before, they sort of have more opinions about what it is and you know how they like it to fit. I mean, I imagine something as, as personal as jeans. I mean, everybody has jeans. We'll you know, probably spend more time obsessing about what jeans we should wear, you know, and <laughs> right. then, we, then we really need to. But uh, you put John Moore in his Steve Jobs outfit. Yeah, we, we had to try on a few different, I mean, there are lots of different styles and cuts of jeans out there. And when you see the pictures of Steve Jobs, he wasn't wearing the most fashionable current, you know, shape of leg and so on. So we want to achieve that same look and make them look comfortable and correct and so on, mm -hmm. on but a little John careless because he's that's as you say right. not, not the character's first priority right exactly the other thing that's interesting about it just in terms of the way the this opera is structured the opera jumps around in time in a way that i think reads very clearly in the theater i mean on the libretto on the page it's a little whoa you know back and forth however the steve doesn't get a chance to go off stage and change his costume so he's in the same look because it's a little bit like he's visiting different moments in his life from this one day in 2007, right? Right. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing about producing this show. On the, on the surface, maybe it seems, oh, it's straightforward. It's more or less modern dress. You know, it's, it will be easy to costume. But there are only a few elements, and each one has to really key in on what time period we're in. And you're right that for Steve Jobs, he is the he's the thread that doesn't change, right? He's wearing the same costume all the way through the evening. But when we go to, you know, the 1970s scenes in the garage, then we want to make sure that uh, Wozniak looks like from that time period, not from today. Mm -hmm. And You guys are telling the story of all of those, I mean, probably more than any other element of the show, you're the ones who are telling us when we are as we jump around in Steve's life. Right, exactly. The two women, um, Laureen and Chrisanne, both have costume changes because they are from different time periods in the through the story. So mm -hmm. when we're in 1990 and we see the dress that Laureen is wearing, I think people in the audience who wore dresses in that time period will recognize that mm -hmm. fabric, and it's not really a fabric you can easily find Nowadays. today, but it very much is a late 80s, early 90s kind of iconic floral print. So how did you guys find it? We had it custom printed. It's huh. relatively straightforward. Chrisanne's our soprano, uh, Laureen's our mezzo, right. uh, Emily Fons and Madison Leonard. When we first see Chrisanne, and we're in the early 70s, she's wearing sort of a gunny sack style dress this floral is when she and cotton Steve print major hippies when they're in the exactly yeah. so we'll totally recognize that and her straw bag and her hat and so on um, the earliest period that we'll see in this opera is probably the costume for morgan smith who plays steve jobs's father yes yeah so again they're you know it's a simple costume glasses shirt pants but they need to evoke that time period for people in the, the audience so i think you'll 
the sort of the mid-60s. a kind of a plaid, right, that, um, and a sort of a color brown that people will remember if they were around in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Like, what in this show right. has, has reminded you of yeah, things absolutely. that you, that His you glasses, once wore? Paul, Paul Jobs' glasses. I think, oh, yeah, my dad had glasses oh, yeah. like those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are there costumes in here that make you go, oh, I can't believe we ever thought that was fashionable? Yeah, that flower print from the, <laughs> from the early 90s <laughs> that, oh, the Lorraine one that Lorraine wears. <laughs> yeah. And go, oh, yeah, not my favorite, but I'm pretty sure I had a dress like that. <laughs> In some ways, I suppose it's the, yeah, it makes Steve's, I mean, maybe that's the simplicity that he was going for. Of I'm not going to even think about it. I'm not going to try to keep up with fashion. I'm just going to wear the same exact thing every day. And. Yeah. No one will even notice. They'll all right. kind of get well, used to it. Well, it won't matter because that's not the most important thing about who he is and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. As a costume director, you spend a lot of time worrying about what the characters on stage are, are wearing. Do you have strong feelings about what people in the audience wear when they come to Seattle Opera? Mm, I love to go to the show and just see the range. Actually, in Seattle, you get you know very formal to very casual and everything in between and of course, we always have to worry about the rain, right? So we <laughs> have sensible <laughs> shoes usually. <laughs> Snow day, people all end up with right, the same. Right, right. Tell us a little bit more about just the whole, if you could, the kind of bird's eye view of the whole process here of making costumes for the revolution of Steve Jobs. How co-productions work is that the companies that are coming together to produce a work decide who is going to be the originating company. So they might not be the first one producing it, but they'll be the company that is getting the scenery and the costumes together build it all right and so in this case it was santa fe they presented it first they took care of all the costumes and so on so that set of costumes and the set travel around to the different companies so it went from Um, santa fe to bloomington exactly went to indiana they redid a couple of things they added some other chorus costumes and so all those costumes come to us We assess which things will fit our singers, which, you know, what we're reusing and what we're not, and then duplicate or, you know, recreate as much as possible the things that we need in a different size mm-hmm. for our cast. It's just because we're using different singers in some of the roles. Right. For Emily Fons, we, she's a different size than the Laureen from Santa Fe. And oh, the that was uh, Sasha Cook did the Indiana. role down there. Who, right. Yeah. So we are d- essentially duplicating or, you know, making in her size, the costumes. Right, she's a little taller than Sasha. It probably has a different shape. exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. If you have a historic costume, you're going to build it in such a way that it can be adjusted pretty easily. Right, well, I always tell people, you know, every costume that we're making new should be constructed to fit somebody a little wider, a little narrower, a little taller, a little shorter, um, and we leave in as much seam allowance as the garment allows. So... Mm. If we're making a coat for somebody who's six foot four, we're not going to leave a deep hem because there probably won't be a six foot eight singer, you know, (laughs) who walks into it. But if we're making, uh, you know, a dress for somebody who's five foot one, we're going to leave as much hem as we can because the next singer will likely be taller. So Mm -hmm. we just kind of use our judgment. Sometimes the fabric dictates what can be done. And contemporary clothing is harder, actually, to leave alterability. You know, your shirt can't really be let out, right? Mm-hmm. It could be taken in, but the neck would be very difficult to change. We would just buy a new shirt. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about the process with hair and makeup and the revolution of Steve Jobs. It's a stepped off of regular life in California. Everybody kind of looks very much like people you're just going to see around in our world. 
Right. So there's nothing very extreme. There's nothing, there's no monsters, there's no magic characters, right. you know, which tend to be reflected in really elaborate uh, hair and makeup designs, right? Yes, these will be much more naturalistic. So it's hair and makeup in most opera companies is a side-by-side department with the costume department, but we work extremely closely together. So in the case of Trovatore, for example, we were having a fitting and the the principals all wore these ruffs, like Elizabethan ruffs, on their neckline, and we realized that um, it would be helpful for hair and makeup to see what that ruff looked like in the back, so when they're styling the women's wigs, they would take that into account. So we just walked across to the studio, knocked on the door, said, hey, pop into Leonora's fitting so you can see what that looks like and let's Mm. help each other. What's the best way to finish the back of this ruff and what's the best way for you to style the back of the wig so they work together? So it's integrated. The hair and makeup department really takes the lead from the costume designer because they're imagining from head to toe what this character looks like. Mm -hmm. So they'll provide research to our hair and makeup department. So Lisa Cacheco is our hair and makeup department manager. And then um, Ashley Nagel, our wig master, is the one really creating the wigs. So for any characters who needed wigs on this show, she's building those. Um, And really the guidance for the look is just like with the costumes, comes initially from the costume designer. And then refinements come from what the technician, what the wig master knows about that performer's head shape or skin coloring what you mm-hmm. know this blonde or that blonde what's the most flattering mm-hmm. yeah um and is it typical in a contemporary period to use the singer's own hair as opposed to using wigs as much as possible in modern dress it looks more natural to use the singer's own hair and that's not always possible so we will use wigs sometimes in this opera there are people who's we're going to see their own hair yeah for sure. Yeah, so the hair and makeup crew will help style hair. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that might just be comb it this way and put a little gel in it. Could be that mm-hmm. straightforward for a gentleman, and it could be a little more involved, like maybe we need some hot rollers or something. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we're actually talking today on Tech Week, and this is the process where you guys are, are moving to the theater. You're finishing all of the questions of design and also involving now the wardrobe crew. And right. tell us a little bit about that stage of the process. Yeah, so wardrobe crew is essentially the team that's backstage during the uh, dress rehearsals and performances, making sure everyone's on time on stage wearing the right thing. And then they also care for the costumes between performances, so laundry, dry cleaning, mending. And do you guys do that in-house, or do you... In-house, meaning backstage at McCall Hall. Yeah, we have laundry facilities there. Yeah. So the wardrobe team comes into the costume shop the week before we move to the theater to learn the show, to check in with stage management and with myself and Heidi, my assistant, and to check out the inventory of the costume so they know they have everything they need and move it all over into the dressing rooms. So it's a lot of organizational paperwork and labeling and you know down to the socks right we need Mm -hmm. to know when we throw those socks in the laundry where do they go Mm -hmm. after the laundry is done (laughs) whose dressing room (laughs) (laughs) how many many, singers probably have they probably have eight pieces per costume but something like trovatore each costume might have 10 to 15 so there's a lot more pieces to keep track of yep uh, and more characters, bigger chorus in exactly. Trovatore. Yeah. Uh, so that translates to a bigger crew. Yeah. And quick yeah. changes? 
the quick yeah. change being where in the composer hasn't given you enough time in the music to allow somebody to get all the way back to their dressing room to sort of you know change their outfit and right. kind of relaxed and leisurely. And people who are familiar with theater quick changes laugh when we say that we call any change that we have less than ten minutes for a quick change. They think that's funny, but if you because it seems been, like it, it seems be like a long time, right? Ten minutes, I could change my outfit. Well, <laughs> if you've been backstage at Macaw, you know that. If you're all the way stage left and your dressing room is stage right and one floor down on the lower level, you have to travel for about four minutes to get <laughs> to your dressing room. So there you've just eaten up all there the time for the change. Minutes, exactly. There goes eight of ten. So anything under ten minutes, we set up uh, what we call a quick change booth. So a temporary private dressing room, if you will, uh, backstage. So there are a few uh, quick changes in Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. I was going to yeah. say Trevor Torrey, uh, there was... A bunch of the rebels who had to become nuns while the baritone was singing his aria. That probably yeah, happened. Yeah, we the had the whole of stage left full of quick change <laughs> booths. We had a booth big enough for the entire chorus men and one for the entire chorus women. Of course, it's not just r- big enough for the performers. It has to hold all, all the, their all costumes the and, and then yeah. the wardrobe people who are helping them. Mm-hmm. Right. So for Steve Jobs, should we? What are there? Are there quick changes we should look for? The opera goes back and forth in different time periods, so... You know, when Garrett and John Moore are Steve and Waz in the garage in the 70s, it's one of my favorite numbers oh in the opera. Oh my gosh, so uh, good. It'll help if they look a little more juvenile, because they're, right. being, they're being fairly immature. Right, you know, exactly. And probably the next time we see them, they're like, you know, high-powered corporate executives in the 80s. Yeah, you'll see Garrett as was his costume change and and mm-hmm. reflect that where he finally adds a tie at some point and of <laughs> course in a somber black suit for the memorial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of our crew guys who are going to be physically on stage. I don't know if we're going to see them in the audience, but there's these big uh, monolith panels that Vida Tsikun, who's our amazing designer for the scenery and she has these things kind of almost in a ballet. It's It's been choreographed fairly carefully, and these guys are moving these things around. Are we going to see them? Yeah, that's right. So this is one then they have to be show in where we have crew in costume, men and women, on the stage crew as also, and also the props crew. And they're wearing kind of a uniform, actually. You'll see a pretty tight palette of blue, green, aqua T-shirts and gray cargo pants. Um, but they so guy, those guys all, all came in for costume fittings as well. They did. They all came in last <laughs> week. They were delayed by the snow, but they came <laughs> in. Um, we fit them, and yeah, so we will see them. Hmm. When was the last time we had a opera with those kinds of uh, Vista changes where we actually got to see some of the crew? In Count Ori, we had a stage carpenter dressed in a nightgown because he had to help move the castle for the... <laughs> He was one of the ladies. The scene, of he the was one of the ladies in waiting. Exactly. <laughs> we actually might have had two. Um, yeah. So it does happen. <laughs> Do they like having to wear costumes? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and mainly, it's a consideration. You know, do they need their radio and their headset, and does that work? It's harder in a in a period show than. Um, t-shirt and cargo pants we just say yeah wear whatever belt you need and put whatever radio you can hide the equipment on that yeah in this opera the uh, all the singers are amplified so they all have microphones are those things that you guys are hiding yeah it's a big coordination between the technical department the sound people who take care of the actual device and costumes needs to have a place for the uh, receiver to go and then hair and makeup has to make sure that the cord with the microphone 
is pinned into the hair properly. So it is, you know, four departments coming together to make like, that happen. What if there's a malfunction? Right. Something. There are, there are people the backstage at the ready to address that and replace a device as needed. They might have to change microphone during the yeah, course of the show. right. And that would then affect, they'll have to change the wig or they'll have to readjust the wig. Uh, yeah, we'll make it as quick as possible. <laughs> I don't think anyone will notice. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just, yeah. Next season, Susan, looking ahead, what uh, are you guys most excited about in the 1920 season in the costume shop with Rigoletto and Cenerentola and uh, Eugene Onegin and uh, Charlie Parker and Boehm? There are some great shows next season. We're um, excited about the Cenerentola because we'll have Lindy Hume back directing it. She's been here a couple times. And Dan Potra, uh, who designed the Count Ori, super creative, very wild. And you'll see some of that flavor Mm -hmm. in the Cenerentola, but in a whole different way. It's done, it's sort of 19th century. It's kind of 1840s. Kind of Charles Dickens. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And then the Eugene O'Negan just has some beautiful, beautiful early 19th century costumes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Was, I and mean, the yeah. Boheme, we love that Boheme, Marty Pacladina's design. We're using Seattle Opera's Boheme Exactly, costumes. yes. Uh-huh. And those are just gorgeous, rich. Some of them, it was designed a while ago, and the, some have been remade over time because the fabric wore out. You know, you don't always know what's going to last and what's... What's the oldest set yeah. of costumes that's still in the Seattle Opera costume? In I the think new it space, is La Boheme, actually. Oh, yeah. I think it's La Boheme, yeah. Designed by Marty Pecklethine. It's in, in the 90s. In 91 or 92. Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker will be kind of like Steve Jobs in that, you know, when you just have a few people on stage, you really have to get every detail right to really land the audience in where we are mm-hmm. and who we are and what's happening. Uh, well, very good. Thanks so much for being here. We look forward to seeing you guys' work when Thank the Revolution you. of Steve Jobs opens on February 23rd. We've got more podcasts coming up about this opera, so be sure to subscribe and rate and review us. The Seattle Opera Podcast is a co-production of Seattle Opera and King FM. Find more episodes at your favorite podcast provider or at seattleopera.org or king.org. This is Jonathan Dean.